If you don't know this about me, you can ask my wife and she'll give you plenty of examples about this at another time. But um, I am a little hard of hearing um, and we laugh about it a lot and she unfairly makes funny of me, fun of me uh, for it. But, you know, I've noticed if you some of you might have the same problem because though I'm hard of hearing all the time, that problem becomes... Uh, magnified, it seems, when I am in some kind of a crowded place where there's a lot of background noise, maybe at a party or at a restaurant or something like that. Um, and so I often have to keep Jennifer very close to me so that I can constantly leave, lean over and say, what are they talking about? Or what's so funny? I totally missed the joke, you know, because I can get bits and pieces here and there, but I often miss the whole uh, because it's drowned out by all the surrounding noise. You know, the Christmas season, it can become so busy and so full of noise, so full of activity in the background that it's often hard to hear the Christmas story in the midst of all that. And maybe we get bits and pieces of it here, but a lot of times we miss it because of all the background noise. And that's why over the past For Sundays, we've really been trying to slow down together and look together at the transforming power of Christmas because we don't want to miss the power that this story has to change our lives because it's a story of God himself coming into his broken creation to redeem his broken creation. And when the wonder of that story settles into your heart, And when you believe it and begin to trust in that story, it has the power to radically change you and transform you. Because as we've been saying week in and week out, it's because this story, it has the power to do two things. At the same time, it has the power to pull you in and to heal you. But this story also has the power to set you free and send you out to bring healing to this broken world. And this morning, I want us to look together at the first chapter of John to see how Jesus becoming a man and taking on flesh really sets us free to be real with one another. So let's read together John chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. This is God's holy and inerrant word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the Word of our God stands forever. Let's go before Him now and ask for His help in understanding His Word. 
God, we come before you, the one who, by the very power of your voice, separated the light from the darkness in the very beginning. The one who, by the power of your voice, called into being all that there is. We come to you, the one who came to us in the flesh, in Jesus Christ. We come to you who came in the flesh to us, recognizing that it was by the power of your voice when you walked to this earth that you called the blind to see, the deaf to hear, the lame to walk. It's by the power of your voice that you brought healing. It was by the power of your voice that you spoke into death itself, into the tomb and raised the dead to life. God, we come before you confessing that we need to hear your voice with that kind of power. Power to heal us. Power to recreate us. Power to wake us from our slumber. Power to call us from death into life through Jesus Christ. As we walk in to this sanctuary this morning, we... We all face different things in life. Some come discouraged, others encouraged. Some find themselves beaten down with the pressures of life. Others come so very, very comfortable. In fact, so comfortable that they barely recognize their most desperate need of you for every breath that they take. Others come with a great many questions and doubts. Others come feeling pain and sorrow in their hearts over the brokenness of this world and even of themselves. Some come this morning wondering if this good news is true and wondering if the Christmas story and the story of the gospel really is powerful enough to change them. And I pray, O oh Father, this morning as we look at your word, that you would open our eyes to see that this Christmas story, this gospel story, it is indeed full of power. Power to change even the hardest of hearts. Because the truth is, no matter what we are facing in this life, we're all the same. Because we're all far more broken than we know. Far more broken, far more fallen, far more twisted and corrupt than we could even imagine about ourselves. And so together, we all stand in need. We stand in need of grace. We stand in need of mercy. We stand in need of the good news of the gospel to know that though we are far more broken than we can imagine because of Him who came in the flesh and lived and died for His people, because of that, though we're fully sinful, we are also fully loved, and fully accepted, and fully secure because of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray this morning, because this is a common need among us all, that You would help us all with the eyes of faith, 
to see the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we do pray. Amen. Now, we can't deal with everything in these verses this this morning. It would just be impossible. There are something like 13 or 14 different themes that show up in just these 14 verses that John traces throughout his, his gospel. But I do want us to realize up front that when John begins his gospel by calling Jesus the Word, it, it's very, very significant. I mean, the Greek word is logos, right? And this word, it can mean something like message or speech or, or word. And I want you to think with me at the beginning, just for a moment, about the function of words. What is the function of words? I mean, there is a reason that when we meet someone for the first time, that conversation naturally stays at a very surface level, right? We talk about the weather and sports and what do you do and where are you from, but it stays very at the surface. And only over time, as relationships develop and and grow, do our conversations grow in depth to moving from talking about weather and sports to communicating our hopes and our desires and our disappointments and our struggles and dreams and those kind of things. See, only when there is some level of safety that is achieved in our relationships, relationships do we begin in our conversations to pull back the veil and reveal to other people who we really are. And the reason for that is that we instinctively know that the function of words, the function of words is to reveal Words reveal, they illuminate, they express, they convey, they disclose. When John says that Jesus is the word, he is saying that Jesus is the speech. Jesus is the revelation. Jesus is the self, the self-expression, the self-disclosure of God himself. To put it another way, he is telling you that God himself, the creator of the universe, he held nothing back from you. He has invited you all the way in and said, this is exactly what I am like. He was not being careful. He was not being guarded. He wasn't being cautious in the giving of his own son. He was saying, if you want to know me, know my son, know Jesus, because he is the ultimate self-disclosure of who I am. And look, we have this weird relationship with transparency and authenticity in our relationships, the ability to be open and reveal the real us and be authentic with others, to be open about the real us and not spin the truth about ourselves and project some kind of manufactured version of ourselves. We have this weird relationship with transparent exposure in our relationships because deep down, deep, deep down, This is absolutely what we want. We absolutely crave and we absolutely hunger for knowing and being known. But at the same time, nothing scares you more in this life. Right? Nothing frightens us more than being open about the real us. And and I want you to see how understanding the open self-disclosure of God in the Christmas story can set you free. Right, can set you free to be transparent and vulnerable and open with others. After all, this is, what, this is what John is driving at. He is driving at the meaning of Christmas in these first few verses of his gospel. There isn't any mention of Joseph or Mary or the manger scene or any. He wants you to see the meaning of the Christmas story. And I am telling you 
that when you do see the meaning of it, it will set you free. It has the power to set you free and transform you and change you. So out of all these things in these few verses, I want us specifically to look at the self-disclosure of God and Jesus and see the vulnerability of God, the dwelling of God, and the redemptive work of God. And then I want to consider what that means for our relationships. Okay, so first, the vulnerability of God. The Christmas story, right? The birth of Jesus. It is a story of God becoming vulnerable. Verse 14, the word became flesh. The self-disclosure and revelation of God became flesh. He came down and became like you and me. I mean, there is an amazing mystery here in this Christmas story. Some of you know the name of St. Augustine, right? An early church father in the 4th century. He highlights this mystery when he writes this. He writes, Jesus was before his own flesh. He was before his own flesh. He created his own mother. He chose her in whom he should be conceived. He created her of whom he should be created. The word was God. It is amazing to consider. The creator became the created. The God who exists outside of space and time entered into history itself as a man. And here's what I want you to realize in this first point. When God did this, When the word entered into space and time and became flesh, God himself became vulnerable. I mean, you just think about it. All of a sudden, God was subject to the experience of pain and suffering and hunger and thirst and loss. He became vulnerable to misunderstanding and rejection. That's very clear in verses 10 through 11. He came to his creation, but he wasn't received by them. He opened himself up to being hurt, to betrayal, to disappointment, to pressure, and to sorrow. And ultimately, when the Word became flesh, he became ultimately vulnerable. Because all of a sudden, God became killable. The author of Hebrews writes in chapter 4 of his letter, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. You know, when suffering, difficulty, hardship, or pain, when it comes into our lives, and when we feel it fresh, We naturally seek out those who can identify with our suffering and our pain and our sorrow. Someone who has also had a similar experience and can give us hope to get to the other side. We seek out those who have walked in those kind of shoes through loss and sickness and sorrow and injustice. Listen, because the word became flesh and made himself vulnerable and subject to the pain and misery of this broken world, you can go to him with anything, he knew loss and he knew sorrow and he knew misunderstanding and he knew injustice and betrayal and pain. He is able to sympathize with you because he took on flesh and made himself vulnerable. Listen to this quote from the author John Stott in his book, The Cross of Christ. It's one of my favorite quotes. He writes, I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. The only God I believe in is the one Nietzsche ridiculed as God on the cross. In the real world of pain, how could one worship a God 
who is immune to it. I have entered many Buddhist temples in different Asian countries and stood respectfully before the statue of Buddha, his legs crossed, arms folded, eyes closed, the ghost of a smile playing round his mouth, a remote look on his face, detached from the agonies of the world. But each time after a while I've had to turn away, and in imagination I've turned instead to that lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross, nails through hands and feet, back lacerated, limbs wrenched, brow bleeding from thorn picks, Pricks, mouth dry and intolerably tolerably thirsty, plunged into God-forsaken darkness. He says, that is the God for me. He laid aside his immunity to pain. He entered our world of flesh, blood, tears, and death. He suffered for us, and our sufferings become more manageable in light of his. Look, he became vulnerable for us. He laid aside his immunity to pain. He didn't come to potentially face the brokenness and pain of this life. He came to actually face it in his vulnerability. In all the world religions, there is not a concept of God that even comes close to this. The Christmas story gives you an utterly and completely unique understanding of God because he was not detached from the agonies of this world. He came vulnerable to experience it. Do you feel the pressure, the sorrow, the pain, the injustice of this world? If you do, he is closer to you than you think. He was not immune to pain, sorrow, and injustice. He walked in those shoes. Second, I want us to consider the dwelling of God. Jesus, the self-disclosure of God, came and made his dwelling among us. Verse 14 again. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. That word that's translated dwelling is a unique word, as some of you know, because there were other words that John could have used there, right? He could have used words that meant lived or resided or abided or something like that. But John specifically chose this word from a Greek translation of the Old Testament that meant tabernacle. Verse 14 is literally says the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. You know, a popular verse that's often read during the Christmas season comes from the prophecy of Isaiah in chapter 7, where it says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. And Emmanuel means God with us, God among us. That was the hope, right? That was the promise that everyone was looking forward to. And you know, the tabernacle in the Old Testament, it was the physical representation of that hope. Because it was this tent in the center of the nation of Israel's camp. That, it was, that was the place of worship, right? That was the place to come and fall down and behold God in His glory. That tent, that was the physical place that God came down to meet with His people, right? More than that, this was the place where the people came to encounter the grace of God. Because this tent, it was a place of blood. It was a place of death and smoking burnt offerings. Because it was the place where the priest, he offered sacrifices to atone for sin. You see, here's what I'm saying to you if you're following me. John takes this loaded word right from the Old Testament. In the Old Testament biblical history. And he uses it to point to Jesus. To say Jesus is the fulfillment of the tabernacle. 
couple of weeks ago, I told you that I um, I started rereading The Hobbit to, you know, dutifully prepare myself for the movie. I haven't seen it yet, but um, I, I finished it this past week. And the author Tolkien, if you've read any of his stuff, Lord of the Rings, The Hobbit, whatever, he was just a genius at the use of the technique of foreshadowing. Right. I mean, along the way, you're reading about Bilbo and the dwarves and the evil dragon smog and his treasure and all this kind of stuff. Right. And he keeps dropping these hints about what's coming. And sometimes they're real subtle and sometimes they're not even not all that subtle. But but as you keep reading and the story unfolds, you see how he masterfully weaves all of these things together into their fulfillment. I realize how nerdy all of this stuff sounds to you right now, but it fascinates me how the really good authors can use this technique in such a way that they get your heart and they get your mind going in a direction, right? And they do it in such a way that you're guessing and you're hoping at what is to come. And you think you know what's coming. And even if you do know what's coming, they do it in such a way that you have to keep reading. It pulls you in further so that you can see the fulfillment revealed. John, when he writes the word tabernacled among us, he is saying Jesus is the fulfillment of the tabernacle. Jesus is the fulfillment, he is saying, of the deepest longings and hopes of your heart. That God would come down. That he would come down from heaven to be among his people. The central place of worship, the gathering place for God's people, the place where God meets with man, the place where we find assurance of the forgiveness of our sins and the delight of God. John is saying it isn't a tent in the wilderness. That was just a hint. It was just a hint. It is all in the person and work of Jesus who came and made his dwelling among us. You know, I can't go into a whole thing here because of time, but all of us. We have sought to suppress our deepest longings and hopes to be before the face of God. We've ignored it, we've rebelled against it, fought against it, or we've tried to fill it with a lesser hope or longing. But you never can shake it all together, can you? Because this is what you are made for, the face of God. And John is saying, listen to this good news. Jesus is the tabernacle and he can take you into the very presence of God, cleansed and made whole in him. Now, finally, I want us to see how the self-disclosure of God, how, how Jesus came to accomplish the redemptive work of God and bring us before his face. See, if the word tabernacle, if that word is in verse 14 is meant to trigger your memory of the Old Testament and take you back to the tabernacle, then the opening words of John's gospel in verse 1 take you back even further than that. Because John starts his gospel by saying, in the beginning was the word. He uses those words to trigger us to think of the very beginning. The first words of the entire Bible in Genesis chapter 1 verse 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now, don't lose sight of the, the forest for the trees here. But John makes several allusions to the creation story in, in Genesis in these opening verses of his gospel. Right, Verse 1 and 2, he references those words in the beginning. Verse 3, through him all things were made. Verse 5, the light shines in the darkness. In verse 9, the true light was coming into the world. See, it's a play on the creation and the separation of light and darkness. Verse 10, the world was made through him. John clearly wants you and me 
to understand in these verses that this word he is talking about is none other than the creator God in the flesh. But think with me here. Why introduce a story that is going to be about God's redemptive work in the world? Why introduce a story about that with all these allusions and references to creation? Here's what I think is going on. John is saying, through the word, all things were made. And now the word became flesh so that in him, all things, all things would be remade. The one who created everything has come to recreate his fallen creation. Did you you feel this deep in your bones? You and I, we were not made for a world like this. Right? We weren't made for a life full of such brokenness and twistedness and injustice and pain. We weren't made for a world that is full of the kind of violence that was reported to us this past week. We weren't made for a world that is so fractured and fragmented. We weren't made to distrust the one who made us and to so regularly wander away from him and his face. We weren't made for that. Jesus came to undo all the brokenness of this world and in you, in his flesh. The word came in the flesh in order to go to the cross and through the cross to make all things new. To, as he says in verses 12 through 13, real brief paraphrase, to bring new life. The one who breathed the first life into man came to bring new life to the children of God through his death. Some of you might remember how the gospel writers, how they describe the events of the crucifixion, right? His death on the cross. They tell us that when Jesus was crucified, darkness fell over the face of the earth. The sun stopped shining, is what Luke writes. And they tell us that when Jesus was crucified, the whole earth shook. They tell us that when Jesus was crucified, the rocks began to split and break apart. They are using the language at Jesus' crucifixion of creation itself breaking up and falling apart. Because that's the point. The maker of all things was unmade on the cross in order to remake you and me. You know, we probably feel like a million miles from where we began this morning talking about transparent, you know, vulnerability and our relationships. Let me try and close the loop on this for us. See, we know that we crave deeply knowing and being known, real relationships, but we're scared to death of it at the same time. And so we do things like try and keep each other at a distance, you know, kind of a stiff arm. You can come this close, but not, not this close. You know, we spin the truth about ourselves. We hide parts of ourselves. We build walls in our lives to keep others out, right? We are starving for real connectedness in life. But all our relationships with husband or wife, with our friends, with our coworkers, with our children, all of our relationships show us that at the same time we are also scared to death of it. Why do we do that? Why do we hide and build walls and spin the truth and so on? It is because we are so very, very very afraid 
that if someone saw the real us, who we really are, they would be horrified by what they saw. That's our fear. We, we think that if they saw us, they saw into the, the twisted motives of our hearts and saw who we really are, there is no doubt about it. They would run as far and as fast as they could to get away from us. But the incarnation, it gives you another story, right? The story of the incarnation, a story of one who knows you better than you know yourself. He knows the real you. He is seen into the very bottom, into the very depths of your heart. And his response wasn't to run away from you, but to run towards you and to come down from heaven to you and for you and to die for you. And when you start to understand that and take it into your life, it changes you. It begins to set you free, right? Free from the fear of man and free from what others think and free to deal with the real you and free to work and to change things about yourself. It sets you free to let others see the real you and to let others in warts and all. It frees you to move towards other people, right? Having your image remade through the death of Jesus Christ, it it also sets you free to be a part of repairing the brokenness and injustice and the fallenness of this world. Look, our default mode is to try to minister to the brokenness of this world from a distance. And so we say, we we need to build better programs and we need to do a men's group and we need to do a Bible study. And if, if we build it, they will come. Right? That way we don't have to go to them. We'll build it and then they'll come to us. And it never works. I mean, it is the dream, right? We can just let them come to us. And guess what? It never works. Here's a little secret. If your individual ministry to others, or if the ministry of this church, if it is not taking the shape and the form of the incarnation, it is not ministry at all. Because real ministry has always been incarnational. Word and deed, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. That is how he brought healing and redemption to his creation. Let me give you three very very brief take-home points of application. And the first is this. If the fear of knowing and being known has you paralyzed, don't try harder to be open. Don't do it. It doesn't work that way. Instead, you have to dive into the story of the incarnation and the gospel and find freedom and rest in the gospel until you know that you are really known in Jesus and completely loved in Jesus. You will not and cannot be free. And second, if you find, if you're able to find that freedom and rest in the gospel, My encouragement to you is to start being vulnerable with others. You know, much of the non-Christian world doesn't want anything to do with the church. Because they look at the church and they see people, a people who are living in denial. I mean, they see the church pointing the finger at brokenness and slavery and corruption and perversion and all those kind of things while never being able to admit and be transparent about the brokenness and the slavery and the corruption of sin that is in our hearts too. You start being vulnerable and being open about who you really are, and you might finally start having some real conversations in your life with other people just like you 
who really and truly desperately and desperately need Jesus. And third, consider your dwelling. I mean, do you understand? God put you in the job that you have. He put you in the family that you have. He put you in the neighborhood you live in. He gave you the friends and the relationships you have. The people you regularly rub shoulders with in this life. They, were not, they are not there by accident. They are put there by God. And I am just telling you this. That is where you need to let the freedom you have in the incarnation. To move towards real relationships. That's where you need to let it spring to life. That's where the transparency needs to be. That's where the transformation needs to, to take place. You know, we've looked at a number of different ways the Christmas story brings about real transformation in our lives these past couple weeks. And we'll look at one more next week. And my question to you this morning as we end is, is just this. Do you believe it? Do you believe this Christmas story, this gospel? And do you believe that it has the power to change even you? Because it has the power to both pull you in and heal you with the grace of God. And by the grace of God, send you out to bring healing in this world. Let's pray together. Father, we, we do come before you to confess that we hunger for knowing and being known, but we are scared of it, scared to death of it. Because we, we know even just a part of what lies in our hearts. But you know the whole, and we pray that the gospel would really set us free. That we would find ourselves overjoyed with this truth that you knew all about us you knew us to the very bottom and you sent your son to come into this world to take on flesh to make his dwelling among us in order that he would die for us in order that he would be unmade and torn apart in order that we would be put back together in order that we would be remade in him what wonderful grace is ours in the Lord Jesus Christ. And how we pray, O oh God, that as we see your own vulnerability in the gospel story, that you would set us free, knowing that we are loved in Jesus, that you would set us free to be vulnerable to one, with one another, to move towards one another, to be real with one another, to share our brokenness, our pain, and our suffering, our delights, and our joys, and to point one another to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our only hope and our only source of joy. It's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.